comes from Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, the verses 9 through 31. That's in connection with Lord's Day 23, which speaks of our righteousness before God and how we are accounted righteous before God. So Romans chapter 3, and we'll read verses 9 through 31. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one, or none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is, he the, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the, uncirc- the, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on these things, let's sing together from Psalm 62, stanzas 1 and 3. Every Sunday in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith and the Reformed faith, and we study Scripture through the the window that the Catechism gives us, allowing that to determine the topic for the afternoon. And this afternoon, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 23, which is on page 537 of your books of praise. 
This is immediately after the discussion of the Apostles' Creed. And the question is, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, for the last several months we've been working our way slowly through the Apostles' Creed, the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And two weeks ago we finished the Apostles' Creed with the words of hope concerning the resurrection and the life to come. Well, this week the Catechism has us ask the question, so what? Why does it all matter why does it matter that we know all of these things that we've learned? And it's a, it's a good question to ask. It's a question that many young people ask all the time. You get this in catechism as catechism class as well. And it's a good question. It's a sign that people are thinking. And maybe it's a question that many of us think without even daring to ask it. So what? Why does all of this doctrine matter? It's an especially good question to ask in a Reformed church. As Reformed churches, we treasure our doctrine. We're known to be heavy in, in doctrine. We, we, we love the doctrine that we've come to know. And that's a good thing. We saw that also this morning. Doctrine and knowledge are, are good things, things that we're called to have. But it can be a dangerous thing if it leads us to trust in the worthiness of our doctrine as our salvation. It can be dangerous because there are, there are many churches whose heads are full of doctrine and yet whose hearts still don't love the Lord and who will be facing the wrath of God because of that lack of love. They, they, are, they are convinced that they are acceptable to God simply on account of the doctrine that they know and not on account of Christ himself. They think that the quantity or the precision of doctrine in their heads makes them worthy of God's favor. 
And this is all the more surprising and startling because that very doctrine ought to make us the most humble of all people. That's what our doctrine emphasizes almost above anything, how deep, how far we have fallen into sin and how undeserved God's grace is. But sometimes that wealth of doctrine can still make people proud and impatient with others who don't know that doctrine and self-assured that God must love them because of the doctrine that they know. And if we're honest, we all recognize a little bit of that spirit in ourselves. And that's why it's worthwhile again and again to go back to the heart of the gospel. And that's what the catechism has us do again. The gospel never gets old. We never outgrow the need for the gospel. And that's why we also turned again to Romans 3 this afternoon. Many have called these verses the heart of the Christian gospel. And as we study these verses, we're going to do our best to answer that question. So what? Why does it matter that we know all of this? The theme for the sermon then is this. Christians are accepted by God because Christ is perfect, not because we are pretty good. And we'll see three things in our text from Romans 3. First, our lives are in fact the opposite of good. They are wretched. Secondly, our faith also still doesn't make us worthy of God's acceptance either. And third, the point that Romans 3 drives home, Jesus Christ is worthy and he is the only hope that we have. So first, we we must see from Romans 3 how our lives are indeed wretched. It's what the Catechism also emphasized. One of the most common mistakes that, that unbelievers make when they think about Christianity is that Christians get to call themselves Christians because their lives are pretty good. They're, they're pretty good people, or at least they think they're pretty good people, and that's why they call themselves Christians. And if we're honest, it isn't only the world that thinks this way about our faith. If we're honest, we think this way sometimes ourselves. Maybe we even give that impression to outsiders. We have sin in our lives and we try to hide it from outsiders lest they should realize that there is sin in the church. We, ha- we, we dress up, we come to church looking well, and, and those are all good things, but often we do those to hide the problems that exist in our life. We don't want people to realize that we are sinners just like them. We lose our tempers, we have unfaithful thoughts, we have doubts about our faith, and, and we try to hide all of these things from unbelievers because we too fall into this error that Christians are better people than everyone else, and that's part of why they're called Christians. Well, Paul just turns this thinking entirely on its head. He, in verse 9, he asks, what then? Are we any better than they? Now, when he says we, he isn't yet referring to Christians, but to fellow Jews. That's why the ESV just inserts the word Jews there. It's not in the Greek, but that is certainly who he's referring to. Are we Jews any better off than they? We are people who had who have the word of God, who have had it for hundreds of years, we've followed God's law, for all of that, are we better off than the world? Does, does, and, and we could say the same principle does apply to us as well. Does having God's word and going to church and making a good effort to follow the Ten Commandments, do these things make us better 
than others? Well, Paul says definitively, no, they do not. Why? Because he says we've already charged that Jews and Greeks are both all under sin. And then he goes to prove that statement by quoting from Scripture, from Psalm a number of psalms, but especially Psalm 14, he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, there is not even one. Now, if you were to turn to that psalm, Psalm 14, that's what, what Paul is quoting there, you would notice that that quote begins with the words, the Lord looks down on the children of mankind, and then he sees, and so follows the quote, there is none who, none righteous, not even one, and so forth. And I mentioned that to emphasize this psalm is deliberately universal. It's not talking about the world out there, that there is none who are righteous out there among those people that don't fear God. No, it's including us. It's all the children of mankind. And you could quote a number of other places in Scripture that make the same point. Solomon says the same thing at the dedication of his temple. There are none who are righteous before you. He asks for God's mercy because he recognizes there's no one on earth who does not sin. But it's, it's worse than just being imperfect. And we have to understand that. See, we might be fine admitting that we're imperfect. And most people would be fine to admit that, yeah, I'm, I'm imperfect. Even if they don't have categories to explain that because they don't acknowledge the reality of sin, most people still acknowledge they're, in some sense, imperfect. But Paul goes far beyond imperfection. Look again at what he says and consider, these are familiar verses so we can become callous to them, but consider what he says. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep on deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And don't misunderstand, Paul is not talking about unbelievers only. He's talking about everyone. It's very clear from the context of Romans 3, including his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people who loved God. And yet he says they too fall into this category. It makes no sense to read Paul any other way than also including the Jewish people. And in chapter 4, he goes on to make that clear. Even Abraham, even men that we would call righteous, like Abraham, are not inherently righteous. They too are sinners, deserving of God's wrath, like the rest of us. The prophet Jeremiah, he says the same thing in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, by saying all of this and emphasizing this, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't live better lives than everyone else. They, they absolutely should. The Lord Jesus commands us, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
And nor am I saying that true Christians in general don't lead better lives than unbelievers. I certainly do believe that they do, and Scripture teaches that they will. The New Testament teaches that certain patterns of life should give us reason to question whether someone is a true believer or not. You think of what Paul says in in Corinthians, those who indulge in sexual sin or worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheaters, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. So certainly... There are certain patterns that can show that someone is or is not a Christian. But those qualities, whether we live those lifestyles or or not, those qualities are not what makes us acceptable to God. And that's the point that Paul is driving home in Romans 3. And and how do I know that? Because even if you go back to the passage in, in Corinthians, Paul goes on to say, and that... All of those things, unrighteous, sexual sinners, idolaters, adulterers, and so forth, all of that is what you once were. But you were washed, you were cleansed, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So certain people who were all of those things, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, greedy drunkards, and so forth, they were still washed by the blood of Christ and justified before God. It wasn't then their lifestyle that made them earn that that justification. It was that justification that saved them from that lifestyle. So we have to understand the the order of things in in Romans 3 and also in that passage in, in Corinthians. So certain patterns of life, sure, can be used to judge whether a person is a Christian or not. Certain patterns of life are indeed inconsistent with Christianity, and if they are there, they are evidence that someone is not a Christian. And it's good to recognize that in that text, too, Paul is not so much referring to individual sins, because individual sins happen to all of us, but he's referring to patterns of life. Certain patterns of life show what your faith really is, if it's there or or not. But those, those patterns of life cannot be the standard by which we are accepted by God or not. And that's the point he drives home in Romans 3. Otherwise, those same people would never have been justified. And so Paul says in Romans 3, we are all sinners. All of us fall into that category of sinners. There's no arbitrary standard of goodness. Many people have asked this. Maybe your kids have even asked this. How good do you have to be to be a Christian? Well, the only answer is perfect. There's no other standard of goodness that can make you acceptable before God. Either Christ makes you acceptable or you will be lost. So again, verse 20 in Romans 3 says, by the works of the law, no flesh will ever be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that's why the catechism that we read rightly teaches that even now, even as a Christian, my conscience still daily accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and even now I'm still inclined to all evil. If it's our commandment-keeping 
that makes us worthy before God, then the catechism says every one of us ought to recognize that he and she is doomed. And if you say, well, well my, conscience doesn't, my conscience doesn't accuse me of those things, that still doesn't mean that you're okay. It only means that your conscience is broken. It's calloused by sin. Ask then your husband or your wife whether you are a sinner. Ask people that know you and judge your life then by the law of God, which is objective, not by your standard of good and acceptable or not good and not acceptable. The reality is we all sin against all of God's commandments. We are all inclined to evil. And Paul is not at all ambiguous on that point. We're all under sin. None is righteous. That's our first point. Now, for many Christians, this is old news. We, we know that we're not saved by our works or by our law-keeping. But many of us do still get it wrong because we believe that instead it's our faith that makes us worthy. And this is what I alluded to in the introduction about our doctrine. We think, no, we're not saved by our works. Our doctrine taught us that instead we're going to be saved by the quality of our faith. People with good faith earn their salvation. Now what this does is it ultimately makes faith another work in and of itself. But, but then it's, it's its own distinct work. And that devastates the comfort that a Christian has. Because, after all, who among us has perfect faith? Just as when someone is trusting in their own righteousness, you ought to ask them, well, how righteous do you have to be to be saved? That forces them to go to the Word of God to find out. So with those who trust in the worthiness of their faith, we ought to ask, well, then how much faith is enough to be saved? Jesus said to his disciples, O you of little faith, do you suppose, brother or sister, that your faith is greater than theirs? And, and if it is, how much faith is it that you need to be saved? Who never doubts? Who has perfect faith? Who never struggles in their faith? Whose faith never slips. Indeed, every time we sin, it's a result of our faith slipping. So if we believe that we are saved on account of the worthiness of our faith, then one of two things will happen. Either we will be devastated and despair because we know that our faith is not enough, or we will become self-deluded and proud, believing that our faith is much greater than in fact it is. And this is why we need to hear the gospel over and over again. It's why, this, why the gospel ought to be preached from this pulpit week after week. We need to hear it again. It isn't our works, nor is it the worthiness of our faith that makes us acceptable before God. Neither of those things can save us. It's very easy for us to believe that they do. We want something in ourselves that we can trust in instead of having to trust in God. But none of those things can save us. So what then does make us acceptable before God? That's our last point. If it's not our good lives and if it's not the worthiness of our faith, what are we to put our trust in? Well, Paul says it very clearly in Romans 3, verse 21. He says, Now, apart from the law, 
the righteousness of God, so you could say that which makes us righteous before God, has been manifested. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For he says there's no distinction. All have sinned and all do fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace. And here's the key phrase, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation for, uh, in, in his blood through faith. So what is it, according to Paul, that makes us acceptable before God? It certainly isn't our relatively good lives, if we have them. And it also isn't our faith by itself, no matter how strong it might be. Those things do not make us worthy before God. The, the status of righteous or acceptable before God, Paul says, that's a gift. And it comes through the redemption in Christ's blood because God displayed him publicly as a propitiation. Now, that's a, that's a long word, pro, propitiation. And it's probably not a word that you've ever used in your day-to-day conversation. But it simply means this, the, the turning away of anger as a result of a gift. The turning away of anger as the result of a gift. In other words, the only reason that we can ever be received into God's favor is if his anger is somehow turned away and the life and death of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can turn God's anger away from us. Now we know not everyone is going to be saved. The Bible is very clear about that. Jesus Christ offered himself up, yes, as a propitiation to satisfy God's justice, but he didn't turn away God's anger From everyone. This is where that key phrase, through faith, comes in. Paul says, Jesus was a public propitiation of God's anger because of his blood. And then he says, through faith. Now what does he mean by that phrase, through faith? How does faith play a role here? How is Christ a propitiation through faith? Well, you can find the answer to that. In verse 26, at the end of verse 26, Paul says, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what's the role of faith, according to Paul in Romans 3? Faith is how we receive that gift, which is the, death, the life and death of Christ. Faith is the way we receive God's grace and as a result are justified. You see, Christ died to satisfy God's justice and God's righteous anger against sin. But apart from God's grace, even still, none of us would have thought anything of it. Yes, Christ died, but we believe in our old nature that we are good enough in ourselves. So what do we need Christ's death for? People are generally persuaded they're already pretty good. There's already nothing wrong, no reason to, for, for Christ to die. Faith is recognizing that what God says in his word about us is dead on. It's true. We are sinners deserving of hell and desperately in need of salvation. And faith is recognizing that Christ is the one sent by God who did satisfy God's wrath when he gave his life for us on the cross. And faith is recognizing that not only are those things true, but it's also accepting personally that they are true also for me. 
this is why then that doctrine is so important. We cannot be saved if we don't know that we're sinners. We cannot be saved if we don't know how, how God sent a Savior for our sin. Doctrine matters. But faith is much more than just doctrine. Faith is also the heart's reaction to what Christ did. It's entirely possible to believe everything that the Bible says, that it's all true, that Christ really did die for sin, and yet still to personally reject him and walk away from him. Faith is saying, uh, faith is embracing Christ and saying, yes, I need that sacrifice. Yes, I wholeheartedly embrace Christ as the Savior that God has sent for me. And I believe that he died also for my sins and that apart from him, I have no hope before God. That's the role of faith. And believing that, having that faith is a life-changing reality. We're not accepted because of the worthiness of our lives, but our lives will be changed if we believe in Christ. It's possible for someone to fool themselves into thinking that they have faith when they don't, but it will show by their life. That's why James says elsewhere that our faith is shown by its works. That's why Paul also says in that verse we looked at that the sexually immoral and idolaters and thieves and greedy and drunkards and so forth categorically will not inherit the kingdom of God because our faith will show itself in our works. But we do understand then the order in which this happens. We're accepted because of Christ. We live differently because of what he has done. We don't, we're not accepted because of how we live differently. And so anyone who who genuinely recognizes his sin and believes God's righteous judgment against him, that, that God's judgment of hell is right and just, and that we do indeed deserve that, and that Christ is who he said he is, and that he truly died as a propitiation for your sins and for mine, anyone who believes that will absolutely be changed as a result. So some people then talk about an obedient faith. I don't personally love the term because I find it's, it's unhelpful. It makes us believe that, that obedience within our faith is partly what saves us, and that goes against everything that Paul teaches. But there is some value in this phrase, obedient faith, because true faith is obedient. It looks different from false faith, and that's a, a point that James drives home. True faith is marked by an earnest desire to cease from sinning and to start obeying God. True faith shows itself for what it is in, in all kinds of, of expressions of love and, and obedience towards God. But as we, as we serve God, as we show our faith in its works, we recognize that Neither our obedience nor our faith by themselves are what saves us. And we need to be reminded of that over and over again. It's not our relatively good lives, nor is it our relatively strong faith, nor our relatively robust doctrine that makes us worthy. It's only the Savior Christ sent for sinners, undeserving sinners like us. That is then the heart 
of the gospel. And that's why the catechism several times repeatedly comes back to this theme. We see it in several Lord's Days scattered throughout the, the, the Heidelberg Catechism because we cannot miss the heart of the gospel. We do not deserve our salvation. We rest entirely in Christ. And so also then in our day-to-day interactions with one another, we recognize that same faith in one another. Who are the Christians with whom we ought to have fellowship? And this applies to to what we spoke about this morning as well. Who are the Christians with whom we, we can say, yes, we have the same hope and we do believe the same gospel? Well, it's, it's those Christians in whom we say, in, excuse me, in whom we see the same spirit as we have in ourselves, who see themselves as utter wretches saved entirely by the sacrifice of Christ. It's the spirit that you can see in someone like Paul who calls himself the chief of sinners, those who are not filled with pride, believing themselves to be fairly good people or otherwise somehow worthy of God's acceptance. You think of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who looked over and thanked God that he was not like that tax collector. No, the people with whom we have fellowship are those like the tax collector who beat their breasts and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Those says the Lord Jesus, go to their homes justified. And I understand, of course, it's not, that, it's not that humility that justifies them. It's Christ himself that justifies them. But they will not receive him apart from that humble spirit. They must know there's nothing in them that makes them worthy. Their greatest works, as, as Isaiah says, are like dirty rags. But God has given them the, the gift of faith in Christ so that they believe in him and cling to him for all that he's worth. And just in our closing words, it's on that basis then also that we bring our children to be baptized. By doing this, we acknowledge that what God's word says about them, as cute as they are, is true. They are sinners. Their hearts are inclined towards evil. They, their hearts are desperately sick. We don't baptize them because they're beautiful and innocent. We recognize with God's word that they are far from innocent. And as they grow up, that, that, that inclination towards sin does show itself. It might seem almost impossible to say of, of a beautiful infant that, that their throat is like an open grave, as Paul says, of, of the unbelieving or of the entire human race. And yet, it's true. Their throat is like an open grave. Let them grow up without godly instruction, and you will see it. They, they are only beautiful and appear innocent because they have not the ability to show the sin that's within them. And so we recognize when we bring our children forward, they are sinners and they need God's grace in Christ as much as we do. But God in his mercy does extend that grace to all who believe in Christ and also to their children. Emma and Abigail have been born into the covenant of grace. They may not even know their sin. They certainly don't even know their sin. Nor do they yet know their Savior. And yet he claims them for himself. And so it's our duty as parents to introduce them to their Savior so that they may say, like David said in Psalm 22, 
You are he who took me from my mother's womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. That's our hope as parents, to lead our children to that confession. That's the undeserved, unearned grace of God, which he extends to us and also to our children. They, they do have the responsibility, yes, to believe, but even that faith will never earn his grace. It will only ever respond to it. It's a story of grace from beginning to end. Amen.